Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's uh, wonderful to be here at the church at Brook Hills. I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And th this is a passage, as we begin reading in verse 13, that you're going to know because it is the point in the Gospels, right here in the Gospel of Matthew, in which Christ declares his church. Jesus establishes his church. <clears throat> now, I got a call from a pastor in West Palm Beach a couple of years ago. He said, I want to tell you, there's a young man who was a, an attorney here in, in Palm Beach. He came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, just very recently. He's, he's one of those guys that we just, we just started witnessing to and people in the church started surrounding with the gospel and he declared that he would never come to faith in Christ and well, you know, that is my favorite kind of person to talk to, by the way. Someone who says, I would never, ever, ever believe that and repent of my sins because there's a, there's a shorter line between that and the baptistry than between the person who says that's sort of interesting. But anyway, this guy had come to faith in Christ and he knew he was supposed to read the Bible, so he went to Barnes and Noble to buy a Bible. And so he goes in and he's completely confused, which I can fully understand. Because there's this, that Bible, there's, there's another Bible, uh, there's this version, there's that version, this translation, that translation. And he doesn't know anything about anything, so he just turns to the person at the store and says, I want the Bible. I want the Bible. That's it, just the Bible. Well, what we want is the church. The church. Not just church-ish, not just church-like. We don't want to give our lives and trust our souls to something that's reasonably approximating something that just might look like somewhere, sometime a church. We want desperately as Christians to be faithful in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means we better know what it is. Look here to the passage, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is God's word, and, and here's where the church is declared. And, and, and a part of what we have to do continuously as we read the Bible is to remember that we have the New Testament, the disciples didn't. The disciples are living this. There are things we know because we read the Gospel of Matthew that the disciples didn't know until Jesus said it. So when we're here in Matthew chapter 16, there are massive truths that are essential to Christianity. Even you might say the most fundamental truths that the disciples don't know. But they're about to find out. And with them, so are we. 
The question of the church is really pressing because we're living in a time of counterfeit Christianity. We're living in a time of theological confusion, and, and we've got to know where the church is. Now, you are a part of the church at Brook Hills, the, the, who are members of this covenant assembly. You are members of the church at Brook Hills, but you say the church at Brook Hills because you know there are churches elsewhere. That, that this is saying this is the church here. This is this gathered community. This is this covenant congregation, but there are others. Well, how, how, do, how do we know which are the true churches? When you look around, um, you, you look around America, there are churches everywhere. Or at least there are organizations that often have buildings that have a sign up front that says church. Well, is it a church or is it not? Well, we know there are a lot of churches that aren't churches. But how exactly do we distinguish that? <clears throat> how do we tell the truth? from the false. How, how do we know the real church? How do we know the authentic church? How do we know the church when we see it? You know, we can't discern that architecturally. We kind of used to be able to do that in America. You could see a building, you say, that's a church. <clears throat> now, there's a reason for that, which was a tradition of building churches in a certain recognizable form. But many of those churches aren't churches anymore. There are many of those buildings aren't even church buildings anymore. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. not long ago. I saw one of those big, gothic, monstrous church buildings in the center of Washington. And uh, obviously, a lot of construction work was being done. There were cranes over it. There was scaffolding around it. It was sign, signs of activity. I thought, that is just great. Here you have the sign of, of a church making a statement about ministry in the city until I got closer, and the sign was luxury condominiums. Available 2021. And, and it's not just that. It's that you know there is in many of these churches no gospel. There's no word preached. There's no Christ. And, and as this text makes very clear, no Christ, no church. No, no gospel, no church. No word of God, no church. In the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther, the great reformer, has to answer the same question. How do you know where's the true church? And he said, well, the first mark of the church is the right preaching of the word of God. Where the word of God is preached, there's a church. Where the word of God isn't preached, there's no church. Now, he doesn't just mean the act of preaching. He means the gospel preached. Where, where the gospel's preached, where the word of God is preached, where God's word is the authority, then there's a church. If there's no preaching of the word of God, if the word of God doesn't speak, if the church doesn't obey, it's not a church. The church, where, 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 is, where is the church? Jesus says here in this passage, upon this rock, I will build my church. He, he doesn't say upon this rock, I will build my churches. Now, now, now for Baptists, these are fighting words. Because we believe in, in what we call the autonomy of the local church. That is, we believe that the church always takes representation in a local congregation, which means you can't be members of a theoretical church. You're members of a local church. There's something very biblical about that. That's why Baptists are Baptists, because we read the New Testament and we say, we want to be the church just like that. 
And that means there's a church in Philippi. That means there's a church in, in, in Corinth. And it's a, it's, a, it's a local assembly of covenanted believers who under the lordship of Christ and under the preaching of the word live out Christianity faithfully together and, and, and share the gospel with those ultimately around the world. I've just written a, 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 a book. My most recent book is entitled uh, the Apostles' Creed, and, and it, it's on the Apostles' Creed. And it's because in the, the history of the Christian church, there have been three basic units that, that the Christian church has always taught wherever it's been found. And they've been the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is just a summary of the New Testament. We've, we've got to say, this is Christianity. And, 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 and if you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. That, that, that's the purpose of the Apostles' Creed. And uh, and I, I've been doing a lot of media interviews about the book because that's what you do. And, and I can predict one question that comes. And it's because I am a Southern Baptist. I am a Protestant. I am an evangelical. But the creed says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And I didn't take it out. And there are people saying, well, you're not Roman Catholic. No, I did not say I believe in the Roman Catholic Church. I said I believe, and, and by the way, I do believe in it, that it exists. But with the reformers, I have to say, according to the gospel, it isn't a church. So I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. I'm talking about the Holy Catholic Church. Little C, not capital C, little C. That's been important throughout the history of Christianity as a part of our confession. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And so people say, well, why didn't you just say universal? Because that's what you mean, universal. Wherever the church is found, And that's it. So you could say, I believe in the holy universal church. Here's the reason why I'm holding on to Catholic and I'm not letting the Catholics have Catholic. It's because the word Catholic doesn't just mean everywhere. It means throughout all time. And that's the New Testament vision of the church. When Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He meant that those who come to faith in him and are redeemed are a part of his church everywhere they are found and throughout space, time, and history. We are a part of the same church, the church that the apostles were a part of. We are a part of the same church that the martyrs were a part of. We're a part of the same church that the reformers were a part of. We're, the same, we're part of the same church wherever the church is found, whenever. But what does it mean that right here in this passage, Jesus declares the church? And, and how is it that the disciples didn't know that the church was coming? Well, as a matter of fact, The entire passage begins with what the disciples didn't know. Look at the beginning. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The the region of Caesarea Philippi is, is basically important here because it's away from Jerusalem and away from Judea and away from Galilee. It's where Jesus and his disciples would not be recognized. They would not be interrupted. He's away from all the the theological speculation. He's away from the the temple. he's, He's in the most Roman territory, away from Jewish influence. And and so he has his disciples where he can have a private conversation with them. And then he asks them, who do they say that the Son of Man is? Now, just imagine that. Jesus turning to the disciples and saying, okay, I just want to ask you bluntly, 
Who do they think I am? Who do the people think I am? And, and notice the answers. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You look at that and go, that's nonsense. Well, sort of, but not really. I mean, first of all, we're talking about the first century. There, there, there's no CNN. And, and, and people have heard about the preaching of John the Baptist. And you remember that John the Baptist, according to Scripture is the one who picked up the prophetic mantle of Elijah and prepared the way for the coming of Christ, Mary and Elizabeth being cousins. It was in the plan and purpose of God that the forerunner should be John the Baptist. John the Baptist pointed to Christ and said, he must increase, I must decrease. In the the prologue to John's gospel in John chapter one, we are told that he, meaning John the Baptist, was not the light, but he came as a witness to the light. Jesus is the light. But you can understand John the Baptist talking about baptism, talking about sin, talking about righteousness, Jesus talking about sin, talking about baptism, talking about righteousness. There could be confusion. They thought, they thought maybe it's the same person. Okay, that, 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 that's interesting to know. Then there were some who said Elijah, and that's because of the, of the expectation. And, then, and, and this is similar to when it says Jeremiah, one of the prophets. The Jewish people did not believe in reincarnation. They, they didn't believe that Jeremiah is coming back. They didn't believe that Elijah's coming back, but they believed and they rightly believed because scripture promises that nothing of a, prof- of a prophet's message would be unfulfilled. It's really important. No part of a prophet's message would be unfulfilled. And so if they died with some of their message unfulfilled, as every single one of them did, the promise of God was that he would see by his spirit that, that that full prophecy, that full prophetic message was fulfilled. And, and when you reach the last, the last book of the Old Testament, we are told of Elijah, one like Elijah coming back. And it's not Elijah coming back from the grave. It's Elijah's mantle, as the Old Testament calls it. It's his message being fulfilled. John the Baptist's was the one who fulfilled Elijah's ministry, not Jesus. But you can see the speculation. There's confusion here. But it, it, it's not insane confusion. This is, that was, you might say, very understandable Jewish confusion. They didn't know who Jesus was. But then Jesus turns to his own disciples and he asks that second question. But who do you say that I am? Oh my goodness, can, can, can you imagine Jesus turning to you and saying, who do you say that I am? Now, what we have to keep in mind here is that the disciples didn't know how to answer the question. You do. But you do because you hear Jesus tell us how to answer the question. You hear the word of God tell us how to answer the question. But standing here with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, the disciples didn't know how to answer the question. But who do you say that I am? And and so who's going to answer? And you've read the New Testament. You already expect Peter. It's not just here. It's also in John chapter 6. When Jesus says to his, his disciples, after, after some people who claim to believe in him have left, and Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you also want to go away? And you think, who's going to answer that question? And it's Peter. Peter says, 
And it's so honest. He says, Lord, to whom would we go? That, by the way, is a very important Christian confession. Are you leaving Christ? We got nowhere to go. Peter continued, you have the words of eternal life. And, because, and beyond that, we come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And, and Simon answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we hear that and we say, yes, we, we, we know that. But what, what has Peter just said, Simon? Who's about to be Peter? What's he just said? He has just said that Jesus, the Jesus who just asked the question, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. That's the word Christ, the word Messiah. What, what is he saying? He's not saying you're a gifted religious teacher. He doesn't just say you're a wonder worker and performer of miracles. He says, you are the one God promised Israel who would reign forever on King David's throne. That's who you are. Imagine that. They're in Caesarea Philippi. Who's that name for? Caesar. Who, da who dares to call himself both Lord and King. And Jesus took his disciples there and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, we were standing right here in Caesarea Philippi. But you are the eternal king. And, and involved in that is even the promise that that eternal king, the Messiah, would rule the nations. Imagine, imagine the audacity of, of standing in occupied territory in a city named for a, a Roman emperor. And, and Simon says, I, I do know who you are. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But he didn't stop. He went on and said, and you are the son of God. You, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when, when Peter said to Jesus, you're the son of the living God, he didn't mean like we're all sons and daughters of God. In, in what he was saying right there, after Jesus said, who is the son of man? When, when Peter responds and says, you are the very son of God, the Christ, the son of the living God, he was saying, you are God's singular definitive, only saving, reigning son, God in human flesh. And who said that? Simple Simon, a Galilean fisherman. Isn't it interesting that you think about all the sages, philosophers, wise men of the ages, and who's Human lips are the first to declare that Jesus is Messiah, Lord, God. It's a Galilean fisherman. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it sort of is and it sort of isn't. Because Jesus then responds to him saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's a way of Jesus saying, Blessed are you, Simon. Uh, but, uh, but you didn't come up with this. Uh, in fact, you all didn't come up with this. No human came up with this. This has been revealed by the Father. 
Here's what we need to recognize. The first mark of the church is truth. The, the, the first mark of the church is the cherishing and the preaching and teaching and the passing on of the truths that establish the Christian church. You, you, you can't have doctrineless Christianity. There isn't any such thing. You can't have a church without certain definite beliefs. You can't have a church without declaring exactly who Jesus is. You can't have a church without defining what the gospel is. That, 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 that's why where you find a church, you find a church, and the New Testament says, continuing in the apostles' teaching. That's what the church is. Years ago, I was in Washington, D.C. This is 20 years ago or so. I was in a very white-hot public debate over Christ and over the role of doctrine in the church. And uh, it, was a, it was a very public event. And uh, my opponent in the debate was a prominent NASA scientist. And uh, he was arguing very ardently for Christianity with no doctrinal boundaries and uh, no, no essential doctrines, basically a doctrinless Christianity. Now, according to the New Testament, there isn't any such thing, but that was the whole point of the debate. So I'm in the debate, and I'm looking for how to make the argument that I need to make most powerfully when he gave it to me, which is what you hope for in a public debate. You, you really can't create the opportunity. Your debate opponent has to give it to you. And he gave it to me big time. He thought he made his killer argument when he said, I don't want doctrine. I just want Jesus Christ. Boom. And so I stood up and said, you can't have Jesus Christ without doctrine. Do you think that's his name? Do you think there was a mailbox that said Christ, comma, Jesus? Do you think when the elementary school teacher took role in, in, in Nazareth, she called out, Jesus Christ, when she was dealing with the seas? No, Jesus is not his first name. Christ is not his second name, his surname. Christ is his title. Christ is Messiah. When you say Jesus Christ, you are saying Jesus is the Messiah. And what I love are people, you'll see them in the National Geographic special not long ago. A person said, I don't describe any theological meaning to Jesus Christ, but I accept that he was a person who lived in the first century. And I think, well, you just, you just said Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you. Um, and, but, but that's exactly what it means because it, it, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. Where you find the church, you find doctrine you find truth. The first mark of the church is truth. You can't have a truthless church any more than you can have a doctrineless Christianity. Christianity is not a something, it's a something specific. The gospel is not merely a good news-ish message. It is the good news of God's salvation for sinners. And this requires us to talk about who Christ is and why he came and what he did. What it means to speak of the triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. What it means to talk about how we are saved. It means how we talk about how the world came to be. There are specific truth claims that are essential to Christianity without which you can't have a church. 
And, and where you find a healthy church, you find a church that hasn't just intellectually settled the fact, yes, we're going to have to have some doctrine. We're going to have to have to have some truth. It's where the church eagerly embraces, lovingly teaches, and, and, and worships in exaltation of those very truths. That's the first mark of the church. Where you find an allergy to truth, there isn't a church. Where, where you find a resistance to doctrine, there's not a church. Where, where, where you find an intuition against theology, it isn't a church. And, and, and instead, where you find a church, you find even the songs they sing, as we sang this morning, saturated with doctrine. Do you hear the truth claims we were making? We were just singing theology over and over again about who Jesus is and why he came and what he accomplished and what he has done and, and, and when he comes, what he will do and why and how we are safe in him. The second mark of the church is power. Just as much as truth is the first mark of the church, power is the second mark of the church. Notice... Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we have to think biblically here. The second mark of the church is power. We're going to ask, what kind of power is it? But, but notice that as Jesus declares this, he renames Peter. Now, this is something that happens in Scripture. Remember in the Old Testament, it was Abram. But when God made covenant with him, he renames him. He's Abraham. And it happens later. You remember Saul, the persecutor of the church, doing his best to kill Christians? He meets Christ on the road to Damascus, and, and that transformation was indicated by the fact that his old name was Saul, his new name is Paul. Now, chromosomally, in, in terms of his physical body, Saul was Paul, but theologically, Saul became Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so similarly, Simon is now given the name Peter. He's sometimes called Simon Peter, just to make sure we know which Peter he is. He, he's given this name, and the name's not accidental. The name's a word. It's Petros, which is rock. Now, here's the question. Is Jesus saying, you're Peter, and upon you, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? That's actually the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, that, that it's, it's built on Peter. The problem with that is Peter isn't much of a rock, in just a few verses, Jesus is going to talk about going to the cross, and Peter's going to say, that's not a very good idea. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. I guarantee you they don't have those words emblazoned in the Vatican. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is not about Peter. It's about the truth that Peter just declared the church isn't built on Peter. The church is built on Christ. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. It's Jesus Christ who is both the foundation and the chief cornerstone according to the New Testament. He, he, is, he is the foundation of the church. The church is established upon Christ. But it's Peter and the believing church. We get to 
we get to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We declare to each other, we declare to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. Upon that rock, he will build his church. So on the basis of that truth, he gives the church power. What is the power that's here? Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what does that mean? The, the church has too often sought the wrong kind of power. It's defined this as being political power, but political power is very seductive. And, and the problem is that when you, once you have it, you're afraid to lose it. And so you'll do just about anything to keep it. Sometimes the church has even confused this with military power. You can look through the centuries and, and, and you can see where the church has had armies. That did not go well for the gospel. Let's just be clear about that. This could be sometimes thought in economic power or social or cultural influence power. And and here's the problem. We have, those of us who are, are of a certain age in this room, we have lived in a time, as was typical in Western civilization for centuries past, in which Christianity had vast cultural influence. Well, we are losing, in case you haven't noticed, we are losing that vast cultural influence. But guess what? We haven't lost the gospel. And Christ has not lost his church. That's not the kind of power that's promised to us. It's not the power of prosperity theology in which you have this false gospel in which there are many people preaching that what God wants for us and has done for us in Christ and promises us in Christ is health and wealth and prosperity. And uh, these are the preachers who go around flying in their Gulfstream sixes. But you'll notice their people don't turns out prosperity theology is very good for prosperous preachers. And it's a false gospel. That, that, that we are not promised health. We're not promised wealth. We're promised everlasting life. What's the power of the church? It's the power to die and yet live. And it's right here in the text. It says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. What are the gates of Hades? They are, as any Jew would have understood, they're the gates that separate life and death. Hades is the realm of the death. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Death won't have the last word. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. As the Apostle Paul will tell us in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, even as Christ was raised from the dead, it is the promise of our resurrection from the dead. And as Jesus said, even in the gospel of John, I'm the resurrection and the life. He went on to say, he who believes in me will never die. And and John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish, will not die, but have everlasting life. But that doesn't mean that we do don't die in our physical body because as it turns out Christians die right on schedule. But it means we die and yet live. To live is Christ. You know, the church is the only reality on earth that can die and live. That's the power of the gospel. And Jesus said, because of this, I'm giving you a power that isn't found anywhere else on earth because you are mine. And that is, you will die and live. That, that, that's why we sing. If the, Paul says it this way. If we have hoped for this life only, then we're of all people most to be pitied. Because this allows Christians to recognize we're not going to have ultimate satisfaction in this life. 
If this life is all there is, we have to find ultimate satisfaction in it, and we're surrounded by people trying to find ultimate satisfaction in it. How's that working out for them? There's no ultimate satisfaction in this life. There's no fortune that can't be taken away. There's no health that can't disappear in a moment. There's no satisfaction that's going to last. But in Christ, we will have full satisfaction. All of our yearnings will be fully realized. All of our hopes fully made real eternally. And that gives the church a power not to conquer, uh, not not, not to coerce, not not a power of militancy. It doesn't give the church even the promise of cultural authority. It gives the church the promise of everlasting life. You can't lose anything in this life that will not be infinitely compensated in the life to come. We talk about what we're giving up for Christ. We're not giving up anything for Christ. Christ. It's just the ultimate act of delayed gratification. The church where it's found is found in truth. And and the church where it's found is found in this power. And it's the power against which death has no final word. And this is so important to us because we actually live in a culture that for understandable reasons thinks that death has the last word. That the last word is a word like infection or tumor or virus or accident or Alzheimer's. But we know as Christians, those are never the last words because the gates of hell shall not prevail not because of who we are, but singularly because of who Christ is. The third mark of the church is the most neglected, and that's the mark of authority. The first mark is truth, the second mark is power, and the third mark is authority. It's the part of this text that is least known in Christ's church, and that's a problem. As you see here, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the authority of the church. It's, a, it's the power of the keys. And there are far too few Christians who know what the power of the keys are. And, and, and here it is. It, it's, it's, it's the power of ministry. It's, a, it, it's the power of the gospel. It's the power of Christ in the church. How does that work? Well, if you go to many historic cathedrals, uh, it's a, it's a Catholic, Catholic cathedrals, they will very often have stained glass windows, one each assigned to the apostles. And there's symbolism drawn from Scripture about the apostles. But here's something to look for. In a Catholic cathedral where there is a stained glass window featuring Peter, it will always show Peter holding keys. You look at it and say, where'd that come from? It comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, where Christ said, I'm giving you the keys. But to whom did he give the keys? If he gave them to Peter, we're in big trouble. But he didn't give the keys to Peter. He gave the church, he gave the keys to the church. 
What do these keys do? They bind and loose. Now, there's something very important, the Jewish language behind that. So, in, in, in first century Judaism, everybody would know what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about judging things by Scripture, by, by Scripture, by the Word of God. So, the rabbis would sit, or the scribes even, they, they would sit in the city gate and people would bring to them problems or questions saying, should I do this? Should I do that? And, 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 and does the law bind me to do this or am I loose to do that? And, and that's the language that was used. We are bound by the Scripture and we are loosed by the Scripture. And so, it's by reasoning according to Scripture. And this comes back to the centrality of the Bible in the Christian church. We, we, we aren't operating on our own wisdom here any more than Peter spoke his confession out of his own wisdom. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is who is in heaven. We, we are a scriptural people. We're not scriptural people because we decided to be. We're a Bible people because we've got no other choice. This is how we know Christ. This is how we know truth. It's because this is God's word. He has given it to us. He loves his church enough to give us his word. And we are bound by his, his word and we're loosed by his word. We, we are bound to obey his word and we are loosed to obey his word. And, and this is what the local church does. The local church does this, first of all, by the preaching of the word of God. And, but it does it also by its ministries and, and its witness and what it does. So what does the exercise of the keys look like? You saw it beautifully so powerfully in baptism. You, you don't have people just show up who like water. There was a confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and those believers who were baptized this morning in both services, they weren't merely baptized into Christian belief. They were baptized into the membership of the church at Brook Hills. You were exercising the keys by authorizing that baptism, and you were exercising the keys by rejoicing in those new members of this church who are now a part of this covenant assembly, and you are now bound to Christ together. That, 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 that's, the, that's the binding of the keys. And, 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 and that's the power of the keys. You see it in deciding who preaches the word. You know, you don't have somebody just show up here and preach. You called pastors. You, 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 you authorized a teaching office. You made that assignment. Why? Because you hold the keys and you determine who's going to teach. And you determine what's going to be taught. Ultimately, ultimately the congregation determines what's going to be taught. It's, it's, it's the preacher teaching and binding the congregation by the word of God. And it's the congregation binding itself and the preacher to the word of God, even by the operation of the church. When, when the binding of the keys, sometimes the, the power of the keys shows up in some miraculous ways. You've got a big, huge layman. I don't mean that as huge as you might have just thought. What I mean is adult size. And he sells cars all week. But on Sunday morning, he sits in a chair that's way too small for him and tells Bible stories to children who are gathered in one of the rooms just close to us. You don't let just anybody show up from town to teach your children. Nor do you say, tell them whatever's on your mind. You have 
bound and loosed this church by the exercise of the keys, and this is what you do. And of course, this comes down to church discipline, the purpose of which we hope and pray is to restore a believer to full fellowship and, and full standing in the church, corrected by the Word of God. And this is, this is how you do this. You, you, you're doing this all the time. This is what the church does. And where you find a true church, this is what you find a church doing. The three marks of the church, truth, power, and authority. The New Testament says much more about the church over time, but all of it comes back to this. It's in this passage that Christ declares his church. And if the church at Brook Hills is a church, it's a congregation of this church. And if you become a part of Christ's church, then you are a part of Christ forever. There will come a time when you won't identify yourself as a member of the church at Brook Hills. It's important that Southern Baptists remember this week, there's going to come a time when we're not going to say we're Southern Baptists. We're going to be a part of that great assembly before the Lord Jesus Christ, bought by His blood and drawn from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And at that point, we're merely Christ. Until He comes, we've got to, in faithfulness and obedience, establish churches like this and seek to be as faithful and obedient as we can be so that there are more churches like this. But it's all about the church against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. But the most important way that the church exercises the power of the keys is in declaring the gospel. Declaring the gospel. It's on the authority of Christ and the keys that he has given the church that we declare the gospel to you. That we declare that every single human being is a sinner and that that sin is a, an insurmountable obstacle between ourselves and our Creator, and that we sin such that all we deserve is the wrath of God poured out eternally. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God the Father accomplished salvation through His Son, who died on the cross as the substitute for us, bearing the full penalty for our sin, and was raised on the third day in which the Father vindicated His atonement and declared Him to be not only Savior but Lord and, and declared that salvation is in His name. And the gospel comes down to this. If you come to profess the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, if you believe in Him and repent of your sins, you shall be saved. How can I make that statement so unconditionally? It is because... With the power of the keys, whatever we shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever we loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. We preach the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. That's the truth. That's the power. That's the authority.